a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join me today. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org. Also by HSLAmmo.com and Pure-Light.com. I've got some lovely links to these sponsors. You can stop by and check them out for yourself or maybe even drop them a note and tell them, hey, thanks for sponsoring this program. You can find those links in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. All right, let's dive right in. We've all heard, or at least we've heard it said, that talk is cheap, right? Some people have probably speculated, myself included. Uh, why do you talk so much, Brian? Why do you just talk? Well, you know, it's, it's easier than doing actual work in some ways. But no, actually, in tumultuous times like this, it's extremely important that we don't stop talking. Now, here's, look, I'm not saying therefore everything, we should just talk about it and not actually do anything. What I'm saying is we are in a time where uh, it's, it's getting more difficult to talk. And I'll give you an example of this. If you have ever uh, found yourself hesitating to say something or uh, wanted to express something or you've seen something that made you go, I should speak up, but you hesitate. Or maybe you just, I better not say anything because this could inflame people. This could get people uh, riled up. I might get canceled. You know, the cancel culture could, could come after me. That's what I'm talking about. We need to keep talking. And it's getting more difficult because, uh, let's face it, the goalposts are being moved constantly and people are telling us that, uh, you know, you, you can't say this, you can't think that. But you know what happens when you stop talking? You stop thinking. I want to share with you this article I found on lourockwell.com. This is from the Bionic Mosquito. And it's a very solid case about how those who want to rule us are doing the best they can to get us to stop talking. Here's how the bionic mosquito puts it. The article says, A couple of days ago, I posted the following comment at uh, Paul Vanderclay's site. Paul Vanderclay said, You know, things are getting tyrannical when there's a law against patience. Don't think, just obey. Okay, okay. He says, I see some tyranny coming down the road here. And the bionic mosquito responds and says, Paul, if that's the criteria, and I think it is appropriate... We're already there. Now listen to this reasoning. To think, we must talk. If we cannot talk, we cannot think. There are many things worth discussing that have been made illegal to to, uh, discuss. And this is just in the legal slash state realm. With the relationship of big business and big tech with the state, uh, there may not be prison involved, but you can be equally shut out of society for saying the wrong thing. Hence, we cannot think because we cannot talk All that's left to do is obey. Does that make sense? Then the bionic mosquito says, uh, Today I came across this essay by Stella Morabito, entitled How Ending Freedom of Expression Gives Up Your Right to a Private Life. 
And there is a link, by the way, in the article to this, uh, this essay by Stella Morabito. Morabito offers much more depth to the brief comment that I had offered, and it's worth touching on, says the bionic mosquito. For example, uh, Stella Morabito says, We rarely discuss the deeper purpose of the First Amendment, which is to preserve our right to build families, our right to make friends without state interference, even the right to think our own thoughts. But to think, the bionic mosquito says, we must talk. Stella Morabito says, in short, the First Amendment serves as a shield against social isolation. You are being socially isolated whenever the mass state or big tech regulates your speech so that you can't express an opinion without fear of losing your livelihood. Once again, here the the bionic mosquito reaffirms, if we cannot talk, we cannot think. Back to Stella Morabito. She says, thus cut off from open conversation your ability to even think, to generate new ideas. Consider new ideas from others. Improve those ideas by communicating. Evaporates. We cannot think because we cannot talk. Stella Morabito again. Political philosopher Hannah Arendt noted that all totalitarian systems depend upon cultivating social isolation in people. It's because isolation renders people powerless. So it's no wonder that freedom of expression is always first on the chopping block during and after authoritarian takeovers. I don't know. These are simple insights, but this just makes so much sense to me. And even though I know it may be very tempting, and and in fact, it it may seem like, look, the most rational choice for most people right now is to just simply, hey, I'm just going to be quiet. I'm going to fade into the shadows. I'm going to be a wallflower, not draw any attention to myself. This is the time where we need to be more willing to speak, even though it's dangerous, even though it's unpopular, even though it might come with some significant risk. As Vanderclay said, you know, things are getting tyrannical when there's a law against patience. Don't think, just obey. Okay, okay. I see some tyranny coming down the road here. So in conclusion, the bionic mosquito says, uh, G.K. Chesterton offered this, this thought. Quote, there is a thought that stops thought. That is the only thought that ought to be stopped. <laughs> I love it. Chesterton had, had a lot of wisdom to, to start with, but isn't that fascinating? And, and this is not to tell you, you've got to go out there and you've got to be a rabble rouser and you've got to cause trouble. And if you're not, you know, stirring people up, if people aren't angry and yelling and shouting back at you, well, you're not doing your job. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. I'm just suggesting that uh, the reason we need to keep talking comes back to we can't think, we can't reason, we can't persuade other people to think if we're not willing to talk. So what does this have to do with you and me? Okay, I'm doing what I'm doing the best I can, and this is on a daily basis. I speak the truth as best I understand it because I believe in the long term these things matter. There there may be more productive uh, work pursuits that I could do. But I feel uh, I don't know, I I would call it a, a calling to speak truth. And I'm guessing if you're listening to this broadcast, you probably feel it at some level, too. Now, you may not want to start your own broadcast or podcast. You may not even want to start a blog. But I'm trying to persuade you that what we need right now 
on a, on a much larger scale are individuals who are willing to speak the truth, even if their voice shakes. Because there are definitely people who are trying to isolate us socially. And I think the, the idea that, uh, you know, the mass state or big tech is trying to regulate our speech, trying to, you know, persuade us, you can't question these kind of things. You don't question whether or not, you know, the uh, Wuhan virus, you know, originated in a lab. Do you remember? It wasn't that long ago. It was maybe, you know, a year ago that uh, people were speculating about this or at least asking questions about it. And we were told that is totally off limits. Turns out that, uh, hey, there may be something to it. Thanks, Dr. Fauci, for your emails. By the way, I guess about 10,000 more emails have, uh, have since been obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. Don't allow yourself to be cut off from open conversation. Don't allow others to dictate what you can and cannot say. Because at the bottom of that, uh, that uh, you know, enlightened or, um, I'm trying to think of, the, of a better word, the, the, the reasoning, you know, for why we have to, to make sure that your language doesn't stray beyond the boundaries of what we will allow, and of course that's always changing, is someone's trying to control what you think. Or at least get you to second guess what you think. And even if they can get you to hesitate before you say the truth, and one of those things we're going to be talking about a little bit later on in the show, I'll give you an example here. Um, right now there's a big hot button issue about, uh, about uh, transgender athletes destroying women's sports. Now I'm not saying that's the hill you have to die on, but a person cannot be honest without incurring risk and wrath, you know, by, by saying, isn't it odd? How, uh, you know, women's collegiate sports, for instance, these transgenders, in other words, men who think they are women or declare themselves women, uh, they have dominated certain aspects of these women's sports. You look at the winner's podium and, hey, look, there's three transgenders there. And, uh, well, there's a couple of biological uh, females that uh, are off to the sides. But we're supposed to pretend like that's normal, that's, that's okay, there's, there's nothing out of the ordinary. Nope, it's not easy. And there are people who are going to try to be offended about it. Well, you're, you're using hate speech or something like that. I guess we just need the confidence to know, look, it's okay to speak the truth, even if it's unpopular. Because if we don't, we lose our ability to think. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, um, it's been interesting watching Dr. Fauci's fall from grace. And, and I, it, this is the hard thing for me. There's a part of me that does want to take a gratuitous swipe because there's a lot of opportunity here right now. And uh, and, and frankly, um, I'm not going to say, oh, I, I knew all along that Dr. Fauci was wrong about this or wrong about that. Let's just say I had reason to doubt because it seemed like every pronouncement that he made uh, seemed to favor those in power. And when, when that's the way that things are going, I always am a little bit skeptical. That's, you know, that's just me, but, you know, 
I, I, I have to question when those in power, oh, isn't it isn't remarkable that this expert agrees with us? And so it's tempting. I, I want to, you know, I want to get my licks in too, but I don't think that's necessarily the most productive way to go about things. In fact, uh, Barry Brownstein just had an article published, uh, I believe this was yesterday, and he explains that, you know, Fauci shortcomings shouldn't be allowed to blind us to the even bigger shortcoming on the part of the American public. This one, this one's going to sting. But we bought into the idea that we should allow what we see as benevolent experts to rule our lives. And so he's got this great essay called Liberating Yourself from Fauchism. <laughs> okay, here's what he has to say. And I, I, I love this. And I think he's right on the money. Barry Brownstein says the deification of Anthony Fauci is unraveling, but he says it's time to learn a meta lesson. The issue isn't Anthony Fauci's failings. The problem is Fauciism, the fantastical belief that wise and benevolent experts should rule. He says Fauci will fall because of the one blunder that the public will never accept. Evidence is mounting that gain-of-function research in China, possibly funded by Fauci as head of the NIAID, may have led to the pandemic. Worse, for Fauci, he's on record as arguing the benefits of such gain-of-function experiments and resulting knowledge outweigh the risks, including the risk of pandemics. So in coming months, Barry Brownstein says, few will continue to deify Fauci. Fauci's veneer of charm and brilliance will chip away, and the political flip-flopper will be revealed. Increasingly, the public will become aware that Fauci and his apostle politicians used the shield of false science to lie about such issues as herd immunity, the dire need for school closings, and other destructive policies. Michael Brendan Doherty, writing in the National Review, offers two explanations for Fauci's role. Either he purposely manipulated viral narratives and circumstances in order to assert his own authority, or Fauci's just a big-mouthed wannabe out over his skis. Now, Brownstein says, blame and rejection may come Fauci's way, but few will learn the real lesson of why it's wrong to give one person so much power. If Fauciism is to die, the beliefs that give life to Fauciism must be exposed and rejected. And he says, we need to understand why a concentration of power creates errors. All experts given the power to control others are over-their-head, big-mouth wannabes. So from here, he discusses the nature of knowledge, risk, and science. And Brownstein writes, Most fascists have never read Hayek's The Use of Knowledge in Society. They don't know why the idea of allowing one man to determine policy is absurd. This is from, this is from Hayek. Quote, The knowledge of the circumstances of which we must make use never exists in concentrated or integrated form, but solely as the dispersed bits of incomplete, and frequently contradictory knowledge, which all the separate individuals possess. End quote. This is backed up with a quote from philosopher Karl Popper. Our ignorance is sobering and boundless. Now, Barry Brownstein says, Fauchists don't believe that about their beloved leader. Who else should decide, they proclaim, but our most learned expert? Popper continued with what could be a credo for individuals willing to humbly explore their beliefs and admit the limits of individual knowledge. Quote, with each step forward, with each problem we solve, we not only discover new and unsolved problems, 
But we also discover that where we believed we were standing on firm and safe ground, all things are in truth insecure and in a state of flux. End quote. So if the world's full of challenging problems and individuals with boundless ignorance, it's not surprising that Popper believed there are no ultimate sources of knowledge. We can only hope to detect and eliminate error by allowing criticism of the theories of others and our own. To put it more succinctly, physicist Richard Feynman wrote, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. Now, of course, in today's world, Fauchists are busy censoring views that dissent from their beloved leader and his apostles. University of of Pennsylvania professor Philip Tetlock has been a skeptic of the ability of expert forecasters who are often mistaken, but never in doubt. Despite the poor track record of forecasters, they never lack followers. Tetlock writes, we need to believe we live in a predictable, controllable world, so we turn to authoritative-sounding people who promise to satisfy that need. Psychologist Paul Slovich is a leading authority on risk. He explains there's no such thing as real risk or objective risk. Like the rest of us, experts suffer from cognitive biases. Thus, Slovich concludes that the public's view of risk should not be trumped by experts with with greater political power. Now, Doherty observed that the public consensus around COVID-19 and the proper or necessary interventions to take against it shifts all the time. Once we understand the nature of knowledge and the subjective nature of risk, how can it be any other way? The problem is that this consensus is filtered and defined by few people, such as Fauci, then translated into rigid rules. Alternative views are then suppressed, Doherty continues, quote, This consensus shapes public policy and leaks out into respectable mainstream news outlets. Most insidiously, it becomes encoded as a quasi-official public line that every individual on social media is obliged to repeat and share or else be subject to demonetization, warnings, censorship, and accusations of spreading disinformation. The polarization of our politics and public health elites has left us with two categories of thought on COVID— the science, and dangerous, sometimes racist, conspiracy theories. Half the time, these uh, conspiracy theories become the science. Belief in the efficacy of masks or in the lab leak theory made these transitions. But these shifts don't happen upon the publication of credible new scientific studies. There's almost no public jousting and argument among scientists and researchers. There's just a sliding from one position to another when it becomes safe. Long after these shifts take place, CDC guidance often comes to incorporate them. End quote. Now, Barry Brownstein writes, Doty illustrated, Doty rather, illust- let me try that again. Doty illustrated what was paramount in Fauci's minds in the early days of the crisis. In a March 2020 uh, briefing by economic advisors to President Trump, Vice President Pence and the Coronavirus Task Force, the severity of the impact of lockdowns on the economy stunned everyone into silence except for Fauci. Fauci immediately turned to Vice President Pence and asked, I'm still in charge, right? In his book, The Wisdom of Crowds, journalist James Surowiecki, echoing Hayek on knowledge, says there's no evidence that one can become an expert in something as broad as decision-making or policy. So for those who believe in decision-making by elite experts, Surowiecki has counterintuitive conclusions, saying if you can assemble a diverse group of people who possess varying degrees of knowledge and insight, 
You're better off entrusting it with major decisions rather than leaving them in the hands of one or two people, no matter how smart these people are. Now, here's where I'm going to put the brakes on for just a moment because we are fast coming up on our uh, spot break here. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. I mean, if you if you looked up at Dr. Fauci and you were like, oh, yeah, you know, he's he's doing a marvelous job and just doing his best to, to guide our country through difficult times, you know, I guess that could be understandable. It was scary. I remember a year ago when people were still, you know, trying to figure out how deadly is this disease? How contagious is it? What can we do to mitigate it? But there was way too much trust in one person. We're going to come back to Barry Brownstein's article about liberating yourself from Fauchism right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an excellent essay from Barry Brownstein. If you have the opportunity, I would recommend subscribe so that you can get his most recent essays right into your email inbox. And yes, I will have a link to his article. From the, It's uh, published on the American Institute for Economic Research. But uh, he, uh, he always has a great take on things. And we're talking right now about liberating yourself from fauchism. That's a, coin, or a phrase he coined here that uh, is... I think very appropriate and it's it's not you know equating Dr. Fauci with you know Nazi ideology or anything like that it's more a matter of putting too much trust in what we think are benevolent leadership personalities we we uh, we may elevate them and put them on a pedestal unnecessarily in his article here Barry Brownstein talks about medical hierarchies he says, Dr. Peter Pronovost is a professor of medicine <clears throat> at Johns Hopkins University. In his book, Safe Patients, Smart Hospitals, Pronovost reveals a, a common mindset among physicians and medical professionals and explores why this mindset increases medical errors and compromises patient safety. Pronovost relates doctors are taught to ignore the crowd and trust their own training and education. Now, referring to Surawiki's book, Pronovost explains that doctors have no use for the wisdom of crowds, nurses, physicians from other, from other specialties, and others. As you read, he says, notice how Pronovost's mindset is uh, reminiscent of Hayek. Quote, each of the members of a patient's team, including a patient, or including a parent, rather, if the patient is a child, sees problems through a different set of lenses shaped by personal experiences and training. Each of those lenses provide valuable information, information that helps us make wise decisions. Nurses see things differently than doctors. Junior doctors see things differently than senior doctors. Patients see things differently than clinicians. And family members have their own lenses. Now, understanding that knowledge is dispersed leads to, to humility, not a desire to make your view supreme. So Pronovost continues, no lens is more accurate than the other. They're just different. Each has a partially incomplete view of a complex puzzle. The fewer the lenses, the more distorted the view. The worse the decision and the greater the risk for preventable harm. A team approach does not detract from the physician's talent, authority, or power. 
It only enhances them by ensuring that he or she makes the best possible decisions. Now, contrast the team approach Pronovost describes with the tenet of Faucism, whereby the authority of the leader makes the leader's view supreme. Pronovost relates many tales of white coat supremacy resulting in harm, but who could have imagined a doctor with the power to harm millions? Brownstein writes, tacit knowledge is knowledge gained from experience and wisdom that can be difficult to express. Pronovost explains how guidelines from central authorities like the CDC suppress tacit knowledge. He writes, one of the greatest sources of knowledge in medicine comes from what physicians and nurses learn on the job. This tacit knowledge develops and spreads into a tribal knowledge of techniques at work, and these techniques are soon practiced by a number of physicians and nurses. Now, Pronovost explains that much of this tacit wisdom is not from the published literature, and some of it may not be very effective, but it's one of the ways physicians learn. Pronovost adds there's no existing system for capturing this knowledge and sharing it with the medical world. But Barry Brownstein says today, notice how tacit knowledge is stamped out as physicians developing effective treatments for COVID are ridiculed and censored. If you're not familiar with the name Dr. Scott Atlas, you should probably Google, Google that. You'll see a perfect example of this. Yep, he was a contrary voice, but it turns out he was right. And yet he was roundly criticized, ridiculed, marginalized because he wasn't marching in lockstep with the expert. Anthony Fauci. Brownstein says, Pronovost's work has helped to flatten medical hierarchies and deflate the egos of doctors, resulting in improved medical practices, notably reducing central line infections in intensive care units, resulting in many saved lives. Now, Pronovost has faced challenges as he exposed white coat supremacy, but he never had to contend with vested interests trying to defame him. During the pandemic, brave doctors like Scott Atlas, Martin Koldorf, Sunetra Gupta, and Jay Bhattacharya have been vilified. These doctors have not been willing to, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn say, would say, live by lies. In 1974, when Solzhenitsyn was arrested and exiled to the West, the text of his short essay, Live Not by Lies, was released. And Solzhenitsyn railed against those who complained about the destructive policies of the ruling they while pretending they themselves were helpless. Here's how Solzhenitsyn put it. We are approaching the brink. Already a universal spiritual demise is upon us. A physical one is about to flare up and engulf us and our children while we continue to smile sheepishly and babble. But what can we do to stop it? We haven't the strength. Now, Barry Brownstein says Solzhenitsyn describes the mindset of helplessness. Quote, we've internalized well the lessons drummed into us by the state. We are forever content and comfortable with its premise. We cannot escape the environment, the social conditions. They shape us. Being determines consciousness. What have we to do with this? We can do nothing. End quote. So <clears throat> helplessness is a common state of mind today. One may say, well, if vaccine passports become mandatory, what can I do? I must keep my job. Another may say, I'm a family physician with reservations about administering the experimental vaccine to those at low risk for COVID. Yet I must keep my mouth shut or risk censure by the administration of my hospital-owned practice. Solzhenitsyn writes, but we can do everything, even if we comfort and lie to ourselves that this is not so. It is not they who are guilty of everything, but we ourselves, only we 
Solzhenitsyn shows us the way. He provides a list of ways we can stop passively lying. Even if we're unwilling to risk our jobs, we can understand that authoritarians and totalitarians rule by lies. Through that understanding, we find the most accessible key to our liberation, personal non-participation in lies. Even if all is covered by lies, even if all is under their rule, let us resist in the smallest way. Let their rule hold, not through me. This is one of the things I love most about Solzhenitsyn. And Solzhenitsyn adds, for when people renounce lies, lies simply cease to exist. Like parasites, they can only survive when attached to a person. We're not called to step out into the square and shout out the truth to say out loud what we think. This is scary. We're not ready. But let us at least refuse to say what we do not think. This can apply to a lot of other areas, right? You can see that. Barry Brownstein says, Our job is infinitely easier than with Solzhenitsyn's. The big lie of Faucism is that rule by benign experts is possible when it is never possible. We must admit the limits of individual knowledge. Authoritarians and totalitarians rule by lies. Their ignorance is as sobering and boundless as ours. Is it too much to ask of Americans that they learn why Faucism is a bankrupt philosophy? Is it too much to ask that they refuse to cooperate any more in the censorship and canceling of others? In place of helplessness, we can choose not to participate in lies. Let their rule hold, not through me, is the key to our liberation. We can be open and eager for public jousting and arguments from diverse points of view, and if this is is too much to ask, then Barry Brownstein says we will lose our remaining freedoms. I mean, I've long quoted Solzhenitsyn on the idea that, you know, you may not be able to stop evil, but you can prevent it from entering the world through you. And I think the quote that I've used to that effect comes from this, this very same talk. Let the lie enter the world. Let it prevail, but not through me. Seems we have more power than we think. But we just have to find the courage to, to not go along with it. And it can take a lot of different forms. I know this was one of the hardest things about not masking up at the time when it was, you know, virtually everybody else was masking up. And if I can be honest, you know, one of the places where I felt this most keenly was at church. Going to church and not wearing the mask. And it's not, no one ever angrily confronted me. But I could see the look of concern in people's eyes. Because I wasn't willing to just, you know, I guess in their mind, humble myself and be obedient and do the, you know, Christ-like thing and put a mask on for the sake of everyone else. But the reason I couldn't do it wasn't because I was trying to make my life into a political statement. It goes back to what uh, what Barry Brownstein's talking about here and what Solzhenitsyn was talking about. The problem was I recognized a lie that I was being urged to participate in. And my conscience would not let me do so. Would it have been easier to just put on the mask and, you know, blend in with the crowd? Oh, it absolutely would have. It would have spared me um, quite a bit of heartache, actually. But it wouldn't have left my conscience at peace. And you know what? These days, that is one of the most important things that I can think of. I'd rather have a peaceful conscience than personal comfort. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Got two quick stories to touch on here in this final segment for the hour. You've likely heard about the current uh, labor market shortage and how many people are being incentivized to stay home and collect government checks rather than go and find a job. And there are plenty of places looking for workers. I was uh, looking at an article. This was, I think this was the email I got from the Foundation from Economic, for Economic Education yesterday. And it was pointing out that uh, right now, Lyft and Uber are not only costing more, but the wait times are increasing. So a trip that would have cost you, I don't know, 12, 15 bucks is now costing upwards of, uh, you know, 35, 40 dollars. And the wait times are actually getting longer as well. One of the things that I loved about uh, using these ride-sharing services when I've traveled is, you know, what depending on where you are, if you're looking for a ride, it's usually within 5 or 10 minutes tops. 5 minutes probably is about average. I need a ride, boom, I just hit the app and somebody's there. Now it's more like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Why would that be? I mean, it's a good system. It's a system that works well. And the answer is because they have a shortage of drivers. Carrie McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education has an excellent article about the labor market shortage and how it's exposing two big ways the government hurts teenagers. Thought I'd just share a couple of things with you here from her article. She says, My 14-year-old daughter walked over to a nearby floral shop earlier this week to see if she could work there part-time this summer. The florist had posted recently on social media that he was hiring. So with her resume in hand and spring classes over, my daughter told the shopkeeper she could start as soon as possible. Now, the florist said he would love to hire her, but when he employed a 14-year-old a couple of years ago, he got in trouble with the city. Apparently, workers under 16 aren't allowed to use sharp scissors here. Come back in two years and I'll definitely hire you, he enthusiastically told Carrie's daughter. So the girl walked home disappointed about the job, dismayed at the foolishness of child labor laws that prevent teenagers from gaining important workplace skills and experience. Now, Kerry says, fortunately, the current labor market shortage triggered by the government's pandemic response may be a boon for teenagers. The New York Times reported on Sunday, for American teenagers looking for work, this may be the best summer in years. As companies try to go from hardly staffed to fully staffed practically overnight, teenagers appear to be winning out more than any other demographic group. More older teenagers are working this spring than at any time since the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, helping to slow a decades-long downward trend in teen employment. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, teen labor force participation plummeted from a high of 57.9% in 1979 to just 34.1% in 2011. Part of this decline is related to more emphasis on academics, extracurricular activities, and other structured programming for adolescents. But public policy can also be to blame. Minimum wage laws, for instance, disproportionately harm teenagers. Kerry says rising minimum wage laws have been enacted in numerous cities and states in recent years, creating an artificial price floor on entry-level labor that often prevents teenagers from getting their foot in the door. 
As the price of labor increases due to government-imposed minimum wages, employers often cut back on the number of employees they hire, turn to automation, or just go out of business entirely. That limits the entry-level jobs available to teenagers and other low-skilled workers and creates barriers for workers seeking to gain job experience. Teenagers with no work background may simply not be worth the established minimum wage. And she says many, like her daughter, would be happy to work for lower wages to gain valuable skills. As renowned economist Thomas Sowell writes in his book, Basic Economics, quote, making it illegal to pay less than a given amount does not make a worker's productivity worth that amount. And if it is not, that worker is unlikely to be employed. Yet minimum wage laws are almost always discussed politically in terms of the benefits they confer on workers receiving those wages. Unfortunately, the real minimum wage is always zero, regardless of the laws, and that's the wage that many workers receive in the wake of the creation or escalation of a government-mandated minimum wage, because they either lose their jobs or fail to find jobs when they enter the labor force. End quote. Now, according to a July 2018 report by the Congressional Budget Office regarding a proposed $15 minimum wage, Teenagers are disproportionately harmed by increasing the minimum wage. That $15 option would alter employment for some groups more than others. Almost 50% of the newly jobless workers in a given week, 600,000 of 1.3 million, would be teenagers. Now, the Biden administration's been pushing to raise the federal minimum wage to $15, but has met congressional resistance. In late April, however, the president signed an executive order to raise the federal minimum wage for contractors to $15 an hour. Also, child labor laws prevent teens from working. Minimum wage laws along with child labor laws emerged in 1938 when the U.S. passed the Fair Labor Standards Act, FLSA. Kerry writes, because of this legislation, the government is often credited with improving working conditions. But as fees Anthony Davies and James Harrigan explain, markets not the government, were responsible for raising worker wages and reducing child labor. The Industrial Revolution and the economic growth and prosperity it created enabled parents to support their children on their own rather than relying on a child's wages. She writes, according to the Economic History Association, most economic historians conclude that this legislation was not the primary reason for the reduction and virtual elimination of child labor between 1880 and 1940. Instead, they point out that industrialization and economic growth brought rising incomes, which allowed parents the luxury of keeping their children out of the workforce. Now, child labor laws may have expanded in many states over the past several decades. And while perhaps well-intentioned, these laws infantilized teenagers by creating numerous unjustifiable barriers to work. For instance, in Massachusetts, where Carrie lives, child labor laws prevent teen workers under age 16 from operating a microwave oven or working at an amusement park and watch out for those scissors, like her daughter found out. The current labor market shortage brought about by supplemental unemployment benefits and government-issued stimulus checks over the past year that incentivized individuals not to work may be helping to loosen some of the arbitrary child labor restrictions for younger teens. Carrie says, according to the New York Times, city officials in Henderson, Kentucky, were so desperate for lifeguards to staff their public pool that they lowered the minimum applicant age from 16 to 15 and raised the starting pay from 8.50 to $10 an hour. 
The result? More teenagers, more teenagers applied, and the city has started interviewing candidates for the open positions. So now is an ideal time for teenagers to apply for a summer job. Employers are raising entry-level wages. They're offering applicants incentives, even signing bonuses. Some McDonald's franchises, for instance, are reportedly offering free iPhones to new hires and 50 bucks just to come in for an interview. Kerry says the tight labor market means that teenagers are sought after and will have an opportunity to take on more responsibilities and learn new skills. On the edge of adulthood, adolescents are too often coddled and controlled. Public policy like minimum wage laws and restrictive child labor statutes makes it difficult for teenagers to exercise personal agency and self-reliance and can prevent them from acquiring competencies that will help in whatever career path they ultimately choose. The government response to the coronavirus has created an opening for teenagers to seize a prime moment of early job training and development. And Kerry says, as for my daughter... She'll continue to run her own baking business until she's old enough to use scissors. What a great lesson. (laughs) By the way, with a teenager who's applying for work right now, this is something that we've been contending with as well. I'll have a link to Carrie's article in the show notes, which you'll find at the com. Only a minute or so left here, but I wanted to to just touch on the latest hot-button issue for our culture warriors, and that is pushing back against those who maintain that transgender athletes are destroying women's sports. The headlines uh, just a couple of days ago talked about, on the first day of Pride Month, by which they mean June, Governor DeSantis in Florida signs a bill outlawing transgender athletes participating in sports. And I'm going to translate that. He signed a bill mandating that uh, men are not going to be allowed to participate in women's sports. We're talking collegiate and high school sports. There's a great essay that I'm going to link in the show notes here. It's from Walter Block, who suggests a solution to this that should be obvious to anyone who isn't running on pure ideology. No one is saying that these trans athletes have no right to compete. But if they're going to compete, why not let them compete in their own competitions? In other words, um, you know, you've heard of the Paralympics, right? Nobody bats an eye at, you know, these Paralympic athletes who play basketball from wheelchairs, etc. Why can't uh, why can't transgender athletes have something similar, their own competitions? It seems like that would be a much more level playing field. You'll find it in the show notes. Please check it out. This is the Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thank you for joining us today. I welcome you to the place where we revel in wrong think. And that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we've got it right and everybody else is wrong. 
This is just a place to question the official narrative, to question some of the stories and issues that are being presented to us, and hopefully arrive at a clear and independent understanding of what's really going on as well as what you and I can do about it. So, you know, if I'm doing my job correctly, when you uh, finish listening to this episode, you should come away more certain of who you are and what you stand for than uh, who or what you should be against and how angry you should be and, you know, where to direct your rage. There's a lot of anger out there right now. My goal is to not bring more anger into the situation. By the way, our program is brought to you by great sponsors like Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College, Pure Light LED Light Bulbs. This is the next generation of light bulb, and it, uh, it does some truly amazing things. And HSL Ammo. That would be my friend uh, Spencer Worthington. HSLAmmo.com. He is uh, probably the truest ambassador to the Second Amendment of anybody who I have met. And when I say this, I mean there are a lot of people in the last year, especially, who have been buying guns. So a lot of newbies to, uh, you know, the shooting sports. Spencer is the guy you see at the range who will take time from his own activities. In other words, when he could be standing there sending rounds down range, often you'll find him helping people who are, you know, for the first time getting out there or, or who are new to the shooting sports and just trying to get a feel for how to how to properly use whatever, you know, gun they've purchased. And he'll offer targets to them, let them shoot his guns and so forth. Just a truly great ambassador, and uh, I just want to mention that because very proud to have him as a sponsor here on the show as well as on the network. So we got some fun stuff to talk about today, and I say fun in the sense that this is definitely going to make you think. On tap, we will talk about uh, word tyranny and cultural balkanization, have a marvelous essay from Richard M. Ebling that I'll be sharing a few excerpts from. I'll, I'll warn you right now, Richard Ebling is an educator, and so he he writes some pretty detailed, lengthy essays, but they are totally worth it because they will give you uh, a great historical perspective and and it from a from a principled standpoint, this guy is just a, a marvel. So we've got that coming up. You're hearing a lot of talk about censorship these days too. And I saw an essay that come into my email inbox last night from Thomas L. Knapp. This is from everythingvoluntary.com. Kind of a handy primer on what censorship is and what it isn't. We're hearing the word a lot these days, but it, like like a lot of words, uh, you know, when, when the definitions start getting twisted or stretched, well, when a word can mean anything, it doesn't mean anything at all. Like racism. Everything is racist. I think back to the line from uh, Syndrome in The Incredibles, you know, well, when everyone's special, no one's special. Same thing applies. When everything is racist, nothing is racist. When, when everything is, is censored, nothing is censored. It's the importance of defining your terms when you discuss things. We'll talk about that a little bit, too. Also, as much as we may want to believe the mandates will be lifting and things will start looking normal again soon, there are still some issues to be worked out. And masks, yep, front and center, that's one of the big issues. Uh, some experts, by the way, are now saying mask separation anxiety is a real thing. Now, I don't know, is that like a legitimate, uh, is that going to be in the DSM, you know, kind of uh, mental condition? Could be. But I'm definitely seeing uh, what, what they talk about in this article, and that is there, there are people who are very loath to, to step back from the masks. They, they get a sense. It's like Linus in his security blanket. 
We'll talk a little bit about that, too. But let's start with a story about masks. I don't know if you've seen the video of a 60-year-old woman being taken down by a police officer in a Galveston bank. No, she wasn't there to rob the bank. He took her down because she wasn't wearing a mask. And it's it's an interesting story. I mean, she's traveling. She's in an RV. She could not use the drive through because of that. So she went into Bank of America in Galveston, Texas, looking to close her account. That's all she wanted. I want to close my account, get my money, and be on my way. And the bank was like, nope, not without a mask. you got to wear a mask. You, you know, you have to bend the knee if you want to, uh, to do business. And it raises some interesting questions. You know, they call the police. Well, she won't put on a mask. Well, then you're trespassed. And um, the, the officer just escalated, 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 until he finally, you know, threw her down, broke her foot, handcuffed her. It's, uh, it's really disturbing. I honestly... You know, I, I don't say this with bravado. I'm a very nonviolent person, but I would have been in handcuffs too had I been in that bank seeing that happen. I, I would have had to say something and step up, and, and it, it, it would not have been pretty. But what was crazy was most of the customers in the bank just kind of stood there, just, what? What are we supposed to do? If this is what the new normal is, ugh, I don't know. That's that's pretty disturbing. And it raises the question, can private businesses legally and morally force their customers to wear masks? Robert E. Wright, in an article for the American Institute for Economic Research, has, has given this a pretty thorough treatment. I like his take on this, too. He says the most shocking aspect of the viral video from Galveston wasn't the police brutality directed against a senior citizen, because unfortunately we've all grown accustomed to state-sanctioned violence. But he says what's shocking was that a major U.S. bank would expose itself to such negative publicity, civil lawsuits, even regulatory chastisement, by trying to enforce a private mask mandate, in other words, one that's no longer even mandated by government, against depositors. You remember, Texas lifted its mask mandate. They've opened fully, but the bank still called the police on this lady. Robert E. Wright says the United States in the 21st century is, after all, a nation of laws. Many, many, many laws, regulations, administrative rulings and such, business leaders that do not react quickly and intelligently to changing circumstances may be hoisted by the petard of the overgrown regulatory state to the detriment of their shareholders. He says much of this regulatory guidance on the masking issue presumes that a state or local mask mandate's in place, not just CDC guidelines. And while CDC guidelines may be constitutional, de facto federal mandates disguised as guidelines are not. So he says, for starters, any bank that knows its business should prohibit anyone from entering the bank wearing a mask, which is standard bank robber attire. And while bank robbery data for 2019 and 2020 are not yet official, clearly, Many robberies occurred in 2020. The notorious Too Tall Bandit remains at large, presumably after his 15th hit last December. The same month, masked banditti struck four banks in Cambridge alone, including two in Harvard Square. Now, vault cash constitutes just a small percentage of bank assets these days, but shouldn't the FDIC immediately close any bank that risks depositors, stockholders, and ultimately taxpayers' money so recklessly? How could the bank's private security not handle an unarmed elderly woman? Is the bank free riding on the taxpayers of Galveston by not supplying its own security? Isn't it announcing to bank robbers that it cannot defend its own vault cash? 
Robert E. Wright says what the Galveston Bank branch did was especially grievous because it denied a depositor timely access to her funds. Now, in the past, banks used such tactics to stave off bank runs, and in one infamous occasion, a bank caused a panic simply because it did not clearly communicate with the depositor who went away thinking the bank was out of money rather than that he was out of money at the bank. Any business policy that endangers bank solvency runs afoul of numerous financial regulations, if not explicitly, at least implicitly. Depositors might withdraw funds en masse in protest or simply out of fear that the bank in question doesn't know its business. Now listen close, because here he gets to the good part. Yes, the bank is a private entity, but that doesn't mean that it can lawfully or morally treat its employees or customers however it wishes, even in some hypothetical libertarian land. Except for Walter Block and a few others, for example, he says, no lover of liberty would think it acceptable for the bank to enslave anyone. "'Tis true that mandating a mask is a far cry short of slavery, but it's also the case that forcing someone to wear a mask with alleged medical qualities, in other words, staying safe, without a government mandate to do so, is a far cry beyond no shoes, no shirt, no service." He abbreviates this, by the, by the way, to NS times three. Most importantly, though, any private entity that enforces a medical-grade mask mandate may be practicing medicine without a license. That's a very serious offense in all 50 U.S. states. And if some highly paid lawyer can magically turn a regular business into a health care provider, the business would then be subject to HIPAA and likely in breach of it. Can you see where he's taken this? I'm thinking maybe there's an enterprising lawyer out there thinking, thinking, yeah, I see exactly what he's saying. Private entities enforcing medical masking may be running afoul of Title III of the Americans with Disabilities Act or even the Rehabilitation Act if they don't provide reasonable alternative accommodations. Separate hours, rooms for those whose real doctors have told them not to mask. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. This is such a marvelous article from Robert E. Wright, and it's from the American Institute for Economic Research. Again, I want to give a shameless plug. Sign up for their emails. You will not regret this, particularly if you're one of those people like me who is is interested in real data, not just government pronouncements, not whatever, you know, Dr. Fauci has divined, you know, he must say to, to keep us all enthralled to, to whatever his advice is about uh, masking up or the pandemic or how scared are we supposed to be today? This is, this is some pretty serious analysis, and I think they have had the best, most reasonable, and I think also the most accurate take on what all of these lockdown provisions and all of these mandates and all of the uh, the horrific overreach that's taken place in the last year, AIER has done a better job of showing it for what it is and, and being unflinching in, in telling the truth. I can't look at the uh, mainstream media and, and feel any, any kind of comparable, you know, uh, a bit of effort has taken place. They just simply have a narrative to, to tow. And, and it's the narrative of whatever those in power are saying, that's what we say. It's kind of scary. Back to the article here about uh, can 
private businesses legally and morally force customers to wear masks. Robert E. Wright says trying to enforce a more lenient face covering rule under the no shoots, no shoes, no shirt, no service precedent is also fraught. He says these rules of no shoes, no shirt, no service were created ostensibly to keep hippies out of stores circa 1970, but they've also been handy for excluding other undesirables, including a much younger and poorer version of himself and sundry other hyphenated Americans. Now, he says, I don't claim that these rules are inherently racist, only that they have been used by racists, which makes them suspect given that they serve no clear purpose. The no shoes, no shirt, no service rules falter legally at the retail level when inconsistently applied, as they often are. And he gives us an example. You visit any store on the Jersey Shore in high season, and you're bound to see topless young men and young women wearing nothing more than a thong and waterproof brassiere, happily shopping away. But then I saunter in with just a European-style Speedo, and carnage ensues because I'm creating a negative externality, allegedly, while the younger folks are creating positive ones. Indubitably. He says inconsistency also applies from, or also stems rather from context. Imagine the silly catch 22 of a shoe or clothing store with a rigidly applied no shoes, no shirt, no service rule. I'm sorry, but I'll have to call the cops and have you tasered if you try to come into my shoe or shirt store without shoes or a shirt. Now he says, I see uh, shirtless women in stores all the time. Because they're wearing one-piece dresses. But I've also seen a man wearing a torn tank top in a liberal part of Georgia told that he couldn't shop because what he was wearing was not really a shirt. Really? Or was it really his MAGA cap and skull face mask that gave umbrage? Walk-in retail uh, NS times three rules, no shoes, no shirt, no service, are a bit different from rules established by clubs or by businesses with established customers where contracts express or implied proliferate. Robert E. Wright says one can relatively cheaply buy shoes or a shirt at a more amenable establishment, but clubs and banks require investment of money and or time, making voting with one's feet more costly. Now, clubs can establish any rules they like so long as they are legal, but they also have to establish procedures for changing those rules that require checks like due no, do notice or quorums and so forth. Moreover, morally, if not contractually and legally, They should allow membership transfers or refunds whenever a rule change takes place, even if it simply adjusts its hours of operation or implements a new mandate that a piece of clothing, be it a face covering or a blazer, be worn on the premises. He says business with established customers inhabit sketchier ground because the contract with customers is often more implied than explicit, especially in weird areas like mask wearing. Suffice it to say, like clubs, they cannot break occupational licensing or other laws. They have more discretion in changing hours of operation and other terms of service, but if they try to block customers from changing service providers, they may well run afoul of antitrust or even racketeering laws depending on the nature of the barriers put in place. So outside of health care and food prep requirements predating COVID, forcing employees to wear masks without a government mandate to do so also must run afoul of numerous labor laws and OSHA regulations. It is true that employees who don't like to mask can quit, but the same could be said for employees being sexually harassed. Should they have to quit too? The law says no. And forcing someone, especially someone who has survived COVID or had a vaccine, to wear a mask eight hours a day is a form of harassment, even if all employees are instructed to wear masks. 
A boss who propositions all employees, regardless of age, gender, and so forth, isn't guilty of discrimination, but he or she has harassed employees because the behavior is legally and morally unacceptable. Depriving employees of oxygen and normal human interaction without clear cause, that's also unacceptable. If you don't believe me, just ask 2019 or 1900 or 1800. Now, he says, at least one lawyer's page, which I refuse to link to, asserts wrongly that the legal presumption is that the masks protect others so employers can mandate them because employers have a right and even a responsibility to protect, in quotation marks, their employees and customers. Without a government mandate, though, that argument could be used to justify any form of humiliation or torture. What if an employer claimed, after hiring employees, that kilts or mercury purges serve to protect others? Employers cannot be left to decide what constitutes harassment or or public health and safety. In terms of tort law, businesses in places without government mask mandates should now be more concerned about getting sued for the obvious harms caused by masks than from people contracting COVID in their businesses. Transmission is difficult to track, which is why contact tracing was such a bust. In practical terms, he says, businesses may fear that if they do not keep up pandemic LARPing, frightened members of the public might take their business elsewhere. But any decent business knows how to handle heterogeneous customer preferences. Transition back to normal by initiating masked and maskless hours of or locations and then allow customers and employees to opt into either based on their preferences. That seems so reasonable. But as Robert E. Wright points out, needing to sick the coercive power of the state on peaceful people is not good management practice and suggests that harm is being done to employees and customers, harm that's great, definitely greater and more actionable than any harm caused by not enforcing mandates that governments are rapidly abandoning as ineffective. By the way, there's a link in his article to the uh, video of this woman being taken down in this Galveston bank. And if you can watch it without your blood pressure, you know, taking a little spike, you are a stronger person than me, or you've recently taken your medication. That's, I, I don't know which, but it's, it's, a, it's a brutal thing to see. And she is not being violent, and she is, I mean, she's clearly disagreeing with them, but again, it, it has to come back to the, why were the police called in the first place? When did this become a police matter? I mean, if you could show me where this woman is doing harm, I might be able to agree, yeah, it was necessary to, to have the, the law come in and correct this behavior, but it wasn't. There's no mask mandate in Texas, but Bank of America, for whatever reason, is, you know, still, they're all down with that. No, we've got to make sure that we're towing the line and everybody is, is obeying. And apparently there is such a thing as mask anxiety, mask separation anxiety, I should say. This is a story from the the Denver Channel. A friend shared this with me last night. In fact, when we come back from the break here in just a few moments, uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit about this. Um, if this is a legit medical or mental condition, I was going to say disorder, but I don't even know if it's that. Sorry, I'm not schooled enough in this to be making these kind of determinations, but this much I do see. There are people who are very, very terrified of not wearing a mask in public. Even though cases are falling, deaths are... Last I heard, there were actually no deaths like last week in my home state of Utah from COVID. 
but people still cling to that mask. It's, it's the outward symbol of compliance and safety. All right, we'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I'm asking kind of a personal question, and it's rhetorical, but do you get nervous when you're not wearing your mask? I'm just, I'm just curious. Personally, as you may have guessed, I look for any excuse not to wear one in terms of, you know, I, I assess when I walk up to a, <clears throat> excuse me, to a business, do they have a mask enforcer up front? And I, I will sometimes put the mask on. I, I have what I call my Speedo mask in that it simply covers my mouth and nose, you know, what needs to be covered and nothing else. Uh, but uh, I may slip that on to get past the uh, mask enforcer. But I won't keep it on inside the store. Once I get in the store, I go do my business and, and it's done. But uh, some stores are very, very aggressive about this. You know, Costco, they'll follow you around. They'll hound you. They'll tell you, get out if you don't have the mask. And I'm seeing stores that say they're going to continue to do this. Um, there's a grocery store here in Utah that uh, has been extremely aggressive about, uh, about enforcing this um, target same way. But now I read that there is such a thing as mask separation anxiety. And I think, ah, oh, crap. They've broken us. <laughs> they've, they've turned us into a, a bunch of neurotics who are afraid of, or hypochondriacs who are afraid that, uh, you know, everywhere we go, everybody's laden with disease. This is an article by Ashhar Quarishi. This is from the Denver Channel. And uh, s- experts say stress mass. I'm sorry, Experts, coronavirus and stress experts say mask separation anxiety is real. The article says for those who are fully vaccinated, the CDC says it's safe to take your mask off in certain situations. But after a year of never leaving home without a face mask, some people may be uneasy with the idea of letting go of the protection. For the better part of a year, public service announcements... propaganda, political leaders and health experts have been urging Americans to don cloth face masks to slow the spread of COVID-19. Dr. Adironki Pedersen, an instructor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, says a lot of us have been able to, to do that condition ourselves. To do that, let's try this again. A lot of us have been able to do that condition ourselves to this new type of behavior of, I get my purse, I get my car keys, I get my mask. Ah, crap, I catch myself doing this too. (laughs) Shoot. No, I do. I check and make sure I have a mask with me just in case. Anyway, Dr. Pedersen says, while the latest CDC guidelines say it's okay for fully vaccinated people to gather with one another indoors without a mask, it takes time to process that. And she says, we have to acknowledge the fact that our bodies might not respond to that intellectual or logical recommendation right away. Like grief, everyone's experience and comfort level will be different. So she says, your family members might be ready to take their mask off and ready to follow the CDC guidelines as they've stated them, but you might have some hesitation and some anxiety, and that's okay. And at the same time, a lot of people remain vaccine hesitant. According to Pew Research, while more Americans say they plan to get vaccinated, 30% still say 
They don't plan to. By the way, I am one of that 30%. I really, I really don't want to. It's going to be curious to see how, uh, how the, the vaccine, uh, you know, the vaccine proof, uh, or at least your vaccination proof, is going to become kind of your passport if things go the way they continue to go or continue going the way they're headed right now. Patterson says, while we continue to push vaccinations and encourage people to get vaccinated, everybody's going to experience a different kind of social context when it comes to their families and when it comes to work. 57% of Americans say they believe it will be a year or more before things get back to pre-pandemic normal, including 14% who say, oh, it's going to take more than two years. Dr. Patterson says it's important to acknowledge that everyone is experiencing this pandemic in their own unique way. She says, I really encourage people, if you have a family member or coworker who says, you know, I'd still like us to keep our mask on for now. I think it's okay to say, well, let's delay this next step. In the end, experts say we're all in this together and one size does not fit all. Really? Well, I'd sure like to see more of that thinking applied in terms of uh, how... You know, how these mask mandates are are being enforced. If it isn't supposed to be one size fits all, maybe there should be a little more flexibility. I'm not seeing much of that. All right, shifting gears. Let's talk about the word censor. Thomas L. Knapp has a great article on everythingvoluntary.com. Censor. When a word means everything, it means nothing. And he says some words carry emotional force such that using them creates an immediate negative reaction on the part of the listener or reader. That makes such words useful until they get overused and misused so much that they cease to have the effect. Lately, the the trending creep people out to get them on my side, word of choice, is censor or censorship. Now, he says, most of us support free speech. None of us want to be censored ourselves. Most of us don't want others censored either. But what do those words actually mean? And he provides a dictionary. This is according to Oxford Dictionaries. To censor is to examine a book, movie, etc. officially and suppress unacceptable parts of it. That's the verb. A censor, noun, is an official who examines material and suppresses any parts that are considered obscene, politically unacceptable, or a threat to security. Now, implicit in both of those definitions is that censorship is an act of the state, backed by force of law, and if necessary, the physical force of government agents. But Thomas Knapp says, I've often explained censorship this way. If I tell you that you may not sing Auld Lang Syne, or I will send police to break up the performance and haul you off to jail, I am censoring, or at least attempting to censor you. On the other hand, if I tell you that you may not sing Auld Lang Syne on my front porch at 3 a.m., And by the way, get off my porch. It's three in the morning. I'm not censoring you. You're still free to sing the song anywhere else at any other time, just not on my property while I'm trying to sleep. Which maps neatly, I think, to Twitter and Facebook deciding who gets to post what on their platforms. They can't stop you from using other platforms to say whatever it is they don't want you to say. Now, Thomas L. Knapp says this maps less neatly to Apple, Google, and Amazon colluding to destroy one of those other platforms, Parler, seemingly on behalf of government officials who think it's their business who says what and where. Thankfully, Parler survived and returned, but we definitely got some edge cases going that certainly at least resemble censorship. And he says that I was admittedly somewhat asleep at the switch on until that wake-up call. Recently, though, he says, I've had to add a third example to my explanation, though. 
Some friends of mine, very libertarian friends, in fact, recently held that Dr. Seuss Enterprises is censoring books it chooses not to publish. So here's explanation of censorship part three. If I choose not to sing Auld Lang Syne myself, I'm not censoring the song. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty tells Alice in Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. So his point is there seems to be a lot of Humpty Dumpty usage of the word censorship lately. And if we're not careful, abusing it to to mean anything I don't like may drain it of its rightful argumentative power and leave us in the grip of the real thing. It's an interesting take, but I, I get his point. And I've seen this happen, you know, with with other words as well. You know, for a long time, you know, at least in conservative circles, well, that's unconstitutional, which was just kind of a way of expressing disapproval. You know, there's there's words like hate, the unspecified predicate. Well, this uh, person is accused of uh, of belonging to a hate group. Ooh, a hate group. What does that mean? See, they never really specify. You know, the Southern Poverty Law Center, who's, who specializes in, in uh, going out and finding hate groups that are, that are promoting hate. Well, we know for sure that they're accused of something, but what exactly does it mean to hate? That's left kind of nebulous, and that's, it's actually left up to the emotional associations of whoever happens to be listening. And by being imprecise and by being less than specific... It opens you up to all kinds of abuse. This is the very same principle that Article 58 was, uh, was used to, to enforce, uh, you know, sending people to the gulag in the Soviet Union. Article 58, you are accused of engaging in anti-Soviet activities. Well, did it really specify what precisely are anti-Soviet activities? I mean, come on, we, we know exactly the difference between murder and manslaughter. But when you say something like uh, anti-Soviet activities, you're just throwing a very broad generalization out there that could pretty much be a catch-all for anything. And so it is with words like hate or racism and sometimes even censorship. So how do we avoid this kind of confusion? Well, you know, this I'm talking about this on the level of individual discussion or debate but I think it's a very helpful thing when you're talking with someone and, and when terms like this come up, things that are an unspecified predicate. It's totally okay to ask somebody, before we go any further, can we at least define our terms to make sure that we're talking about the same thing? Because oftentimes you'll find we're talking about two very, very different things. In fact, they may be so different that maybe even a, a productive discussion isn't possible. Asking politicians, by the way, to define their terms, you're not going to make friends with them. They don't like that. Takes away their wiggle room. But that's all the more reason why you should insist on. Let's make sure we're talking about the same thing here. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thanks again for being part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. If you have made it this far into this segment of the show, I'm guessing that you found something worthwhile. And I appreciate you sticking around. Now, if I could ask a small favor, please consider 
sharing this with friends. Let other people know, hey, I found a guy who talks about stuff from something other than a red versus blue perspective and uh, who maybe uh, leaves me a little more sure of who I am and what I stand for at the end of the day. I would greatly appreciate it if you if you think about it too. Go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These will be the show notes for March 19th. Down at the bottom of the page, you'll find a place where you can click to subscribe to the podcast. In other words, to get the notification every time I post a new episode. Typically, I do two hours a day, Monday through Friday. And, uh, you know, minus commercials, uh, that comes out to about roughly 40 minutes uh, per hour. But if you would become a subscriber, I would greatly appreciate it. In fact, if you would consider taking it one step further, if you find value in the material that I'm sharing with you, Consider becoming a a sponsor or becoming a patron. And there's a link there that uh, can accomplish this as well. And it's it's very painless. Could be a dollar a month, could be $5 a month or $10 a month. I treat those funds as absolutely sacred because this, I believe there's a stewardship here. And I'm I'm just going to be blunt. I believe I will stand before God one day to be accountable for how I used my voice and how I used this platform and other platforms to try to to speak the truth to the best of my knowledge. So this ain't about, uh, hey, you know, daddy needs a new Corvette. This is about, uh, I love this work. I consider this uh, something I was born to do. And I take it seriously enough that uh, that I expect I'll be held accountable for it. I want to have a clear conscience when I stand before my maker. All right, that's a long explanation, but again, thank you for being part of my audience. I want to share with you uh, parts of an essay from Richard M. Ebling. This was published by the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org. It's titled, Welcome to Word Tyranny and Cultural Balkanization. And this is a very lengthy essay. Most of his are. He's, He's a very thorough educator and writer. But he's also extremely principled, which is what makes this worthwhile. If you're going to sit down and read something this weekend, this would be the article I would recommend. I'll just give you a little excerpt here, just kind of give you a little uh, little taste of it. Richard Ebling says, The identity politics warriors call for an end to a colorblind framework, a rejection that society is made of individuals who should be considered the ones deserving and possessing rights. And this should be of concern to anybody who really, you know, values their rights and values their protection from being preyed upon by others. It starts with the individual, whereas identity politics is nothing more than a particularly ugly form of of collectivism, just as racism is an ugly form of collectivism. Different sides of the same coin. Richard Ebling says, America has entered into a new era of thought control. Now, he reminds us, back in the 60s, there was a determined campaign by many conservatives to resist the free speech movement, symbolically headquartered on the Berkeley campus of the University of California. Then, the idea was to respect people's right to say what was on their mind, even when it was considered crude, rude, and offensive. That many of the students involved in this effort were often radically inconsistent and disrespectful of others' property clouded the message, but at the end of the day, freedom of speech was the underlying principle. Now, he says, many in the generation born in the 1990s and early 21st century probably know little or nothing about comedians Mort Saul and Lenny Bruce, 
Both of these comedians broke various taboos in the arena of public stand-up comedy. Mort Saul took the attitude that any political issue and every public or political figure was fair game for satire, ridicule, and debunking. And it wasn't so much that listeners necessarily agreed with or shared Saul's criticisms or satires of the notable in society. In fact, often very much to the contrary. It was the idea that no matter what the stature of a celebrity or politician, there was room and a reasonable need for those who will remind us that very often the emperor has no clothes. We should not be deluded into thinking that just because they might be famous or holding high government office, that made them necessarily superior to you and me. And very often they could be even more misguided and wrong-headed than many of the rest of us. It's just that their positions, especially in government, make them more dangerous due to the wider social impact of things they have the authority to do. And he goes through here and talks about how there was a time when shocking words were viewed as part of freedom of speech. He tells a little bit about Lenny Bruce. And he points out that many of us still feel uncomfortable or offended when language and various particular words are used in either demeaning, humiliating, or vulgar ways, and therefore in poor taste, as it used to be said. But it shouldn't be considered the duty and responsibility of government to police our words and where and in whose company we might use them. Policing should be considered a matter of individual choice and decision-making concerning what to watch or listen to and with whom to associate and interact. He says, once government's introduced into the picture, societal conflicts and controversies are inescapably made affairs of state with political battles over the who and the how of what people may speak or write. Better a social order in which there might be personal offense from the words of others, but with the voluntary option to not listen or read, rather than political dictates and coerced punishments for those using the wrong words at the wrong time, in the wrong place, or to the wrong person. And then he speaks of the return of the politically correct language censors, saying that today we're faced with a new campaign of censorship, accompanied with the demand not just to ban the use of certain words or phrases, but to insist they be replaced with other words and phrases that must be accepted and used if the potential word criminal is not to be found guilty of racism, sexism, or any other of a multitude of created groups and categories and for which the insensitive individual could face serious life and career-affecting consequences. This is, this is a great read. I, I wish I could go into more detail here, but time simply uh, will not allow. I like he, he gives the example here. You know, some words, uh, some languages with their meanings, connotations, and acceptable uses of uh, words, phrases, and terms are changing in every society. So sometimes a socially demeaning word can, over time, continue to be used without the negative implication. For instance, the word slave. A number of linguistic sources say this word originated from the word slav, referring to certain groups of people living in Eastern Europe who were captured in the Middle Ages by others invading and, and then forced into compulsory work, that is, made into slaves. Now, whether or, not this, whether or not this long-held etymology is correct or not, to call someone past or present a Slav no longer implies an inferior or subservient status to those who live in that part of Europe. But he says it's also the case that a word that has an insulting connotation in one language may not have such a necessary negative meaning in another. For example, it's become totally unacceptable for a white person to call a black American by what has been, become sanitized as the N-word. Yet the Russian version of this word, for instance, has not. 
and for the most part still doesn't carry the offending sense that it does in English. It's merely the Russian word for a black person. If a Russian who knows nothing about the historicity of hist- the historicity of that word in the American context, if they were to use it in the United States, the person would have no idea that in using it any offense had been given. So times change, and as attitudes, understandings, and sensitivities change through time, so do the uses and non-uses of words. But Richard Ebling asks, what happens when the determination of the use and meaning of words, phrases, and forms of human interaction become hijacked by those who are determined to arrogate to themselves the lexicon of language, who insist that they, above all others in society, know what should be said and should not be said, and what words shall be imposed on everyone as near mandatory substitutes for the condemned and forbidden uh, forbidden words. He says, this is what we are presently existing in, a world of woke political correctness, identity politics, and cancel culture. And he gives, uh, he gives an example here of uh, uh, Manchester University in Britain scraps the word mother. And then you have the American institutions of higher learning actively training people in identity politics, critical race theory, intersectionality. This is the child of Marxist Mind manipulation. And if you, if you look at Marxism, if you've ever read Marx, I hope you have, you've got to at least know what you're up against. You will find that uh, what we see today is Marxism translated from economic terms to cultural terms. And my, it is so effective. So I'll have this link to Richard M. Ebling's essay. He just says, you know, keep in mind before this new era of postmodern identity politics, that is the, the prior modern age of enlightenment, Human beings foolishly believed in reason, evidence, and individual liberty. All of what is being insisted upon now used to be known as tyranny and criticized as dictatorship. How very silly, he says, many of us to presume that each of us was unique and distinct, separate from the imposed we. Well, we all live and learn. Check it out. It's in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. And thanks for being a listener. This is The Brian Hyde Show.